Jesus is completely reliable and dependable. you believe that? That we can always depend upon Jesus. Do you believe that? Now, that does not mean that Jesus is dependable, that he's reliable, does not mean that Jesus is predictable. Because Jesus was a lot of things and predictable is not one of them. That we can depend on Jesus does not mean we can depend on him to do what we want or what we think should be done. But we can depend upon him to do what is, what is faithful and just and right. Jesus was constantly surprising people in ways that made people think he wasn't like dependable, that he was, well, he was unpredictable. Jesus shocked people by doing miracles But he shocked people by doing stuff that uh, a good Jewish rabbi wasn't thought to, you know, to to do. He touched the untouchable. He touched lepers. He cared for um, outcasts and people who were considered unclean. Jesus shocked everybody at one point or another during his life. He, He shocked the crowds. He shocked his enemies. He shocked his own family. He shocked his disciples. But today I want to share a story with you from the Gospel of Matthew, and it's none of those people who are going to be shocked. It's us. Even those of us who are convinced of Jesus' absolute dependability and perfection and reliability, even those of us who believe, well, whatever Jesus does, it's right, I think we're supposed to read this story, this passage today, and go, man, really, really, Jesus? This is a very uncomfortable story, especially at first glance. He's going to, he's going to visit with a woman in a way that is going to make us uncomfortable. We'll try to make sense of what he was doing, why he said the things he said, and what this is here for. And uh, before we read it, it's important that you know where this comes in the story of the Gospel of Matthew. The last thing that just happened in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus just got himself in an argument with some religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, the varsity team of Judaism. And it, it was very clear in the passage that just happened that they reject Jesus because he has rejected their religious traditions. He's offended them. And so they've decided we cannot take him seriously. And then Jesus, wanting to spend time with his disciples as he pours into them and trains them for life without him that's coming maybe within a year at this point. He goes someplace where the Jews won't follow. He crosses into Gentile, unclean territory where he meets someone uh, that makes an unlikely candidate to play a main role in a Jesus story. If you have your Bibles, you can open those up to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to read Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28, which read this way. This is the New American Standard Bible. 
Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. Verse 24, But Jesus answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Okay, so Jesus crosses into Gentile territory. And, and he and his disciples, they meet someone who, like I said, is, is an unlikely candidate to play a major role in a story where the other main character is a first century Jewish rabbi. Because in the first century, Jewish rabbis did not deal with or even talk to women. She, uh, one thing that makes this so surprising, though, is because, because Jesus, Jesus had lots of sort of encounters with women, especially lots for a first century Jewish rabbi. Jesus, he had encounters with this woman, with the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, uh, the woman with the bleeding problem, Lazarus' sisters Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, the widow of Nain. Uh, we know there are women who traveled with Jesus' core disciples, and we know there were women of financial means who helped support Jesus' ministry. We learned that in the book of Luke. In fact, Jesus dealt with women in ways that let us know he held women in equal esteem with men. Um, it's, it's ironic, really, that like biblical Christianity takes a lot of guff today for supposed, supposed mistreatment of women. But Jesus and the movement he started did more for the equality of women than any movement that has ever begun anywhere. And it's really not close. In fact, the reason we get surprised by this passage is because Jesus breaks his normal routine for dealing with women and and, and untouchable folks. He doesn't deal with her the way he normally dealt with women. But she didn't have just one strike against her that she was a woman. She was also a Gentile, a non-Jewish woman. And the way Matthew tells us that is he tells us she was a Canaanite woman. And I want to let you know what Matthew's doing by using that very loaded word, Canaanite. Um, When Matthew wrote his book, he and his original audience knew there were no more Canaanites. Canaanites uh, were, were not a people group anymore. And actually, they never really were. Quick history lesson, because I can't help myself. Back, if you go back into um, Exodus and Deuteronomy and Joshua, the Canaanites 
was a generic group of lots of different, a generic name for lots of different people groups. Like how we call a Native Americans, like American Indians, like that's one thing. But were the Native Americans one people group or were there hundreds and thousands of different, yeah, that's what Canaanites were. And that was thousands and thousands of years before our story. There are no more Canaanites. Matthew's losing a, using a loaded term. This would be a little bit like back in World War I, the Allies, the Americans, and, and, and the British and the French. You remember what we called, do you know what we called the Germans in World War I? The Huns. Were there any Huns, actual Huns, running around Germany during World War I? No! But it was a way to say they're bloodthirsty, they're violent, they're immoral. That's what Matthew's doing with this word Canaanite. Like She's not literally a Canaanite. Here's what he wants us to know. She comes from a pagan culture that worships multiple gods and they don't like Israel. And the most striking way he can do that is to call her a Canaanite. When Mark tells the story, he calls her a Syrophoenician. Guess who the only other famous Syrophoenician woman in the Bible is? Jezebel. You ever hear the name Jezebel? She's the most evil woman in all of Scripture. That's the kind of culture she comes from. So she's got, there's two strikes against her. She's a woman. She's a Canaanite. She comes from a, from a pagan idol worshiping culture that hates Israel. And the third strike against her is she's got demon problems at home. She's got a, a child, a little girl who is demon possessed and not even de- just demon possessed. She is cruelly or severely demon possessed. This is the only time in the whole New Testament where demon possession is given an intensifying adverb. Like being demon possessed has to be bad. And what cruelly demon-possessed looks like, I don't know, but it can't be good. Right? Like having a broken leg is bad. Having a severely broken leg is something you don't even want to see the video of, right? Much less have one yourself. So that's, that's who Jesus meets here. And the normal pattern for Jesus when he meets somebody who has three strikes against him, is he goes towards them and he helps them and he touches them and he serves them. But not here. Even though she does everything right, her approach to Jesus is striking. She comes from a pagan culture, but somehow she knows who Jesus is. In verse 22, When she comes and asks, have mercy on me, she calls Jesus Lord, Son of David. Son of David is a title for the Jewish Messiah. The Old Testament promised a king would show up someday, a Jewish king, he would be a descendant of David or a son of David. She recognizes you are the Christ. And she calls him Lord, Son of David, which was very striking that she would call him Lord. Here's how I know that this this really struck the disciples. Uh, Mark was not here that day. Mark was not one of the disciples. Mark came along later. His mama owned the house where the upper room was. uh, And Mark traveled exclusively with Peter. So when we read the gospel of Mark, it's almost like we're reading the gospel of Peter. 
Peter is Mark's main source. And Mark does something very interesting. We know lots and lots of people called Jesus Lord, because we can read the other Gospels and tell that. But the disciples were apparently so struck that this Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite woman, called Jesus Lord, that when Mark writes his Gospel, did you know, she is the only person in the, in the Gospel of Mark that ever calls Jesus Lord. And we know other people did, but it's like Mark, he wanted this one to stick out. So she calls him the Messiah, the Christ, her Lord. And now I want to quote for you straight from the Greek, Jesus' initial response. When she says, Lord, help me, have mercy on me. Here's what Jesus said in the Greek. Ready? He didn't say anything. In fact, Matthew tells us he didn't even say a word. That sounds kind of rude, doesn't it? Just wait, it gets worse. So she's begging for help. Jesus gives her the cold shoulder. And then the disciples, we can tell in this verse from the tense of the verb, she just keeps asking, keeps begging. And the disciples pull out their go-to response when people come to Jesus. If you pay attention, when people come to Jesus in the, uh, in the Gospels, the disciples are very quick with this response. Get, send them away. Little children come to Jesus. What do the disciples say? Send them away. You can't be here. There's a big crowd of people with not enough food. What do they tell Jesus to do? Send them away. This gal here, she keeps asking for help. And they go, oh, Jesus, will you get rid of this woman? Why? Because she keeps asking for help. Uh. It's their go-to response. This should probably be a sermon in and of itself, but if we're not really careful, there's something inside real disciples who think a pretty good solution when confronted with needy people is how do we get them away? She keeps asking for help. And then Jesus begins to talk. I don't even know if Jesus starts talking to her or if he's still ignoring her but talking loudly enough for her to hear. But here's what he says in verse 24. When he starts to talk, we think, man, is this really Jesus? I mean, the letters are read in my Bible, so my, the editors of the Bible thought it was Jesus, but this doesn't sound like Jesus. This sounds more like the, the scribes and the Pharisees than Jesus. And here's what he says. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's like he says, why are you bothering me, lady? We don't serve your kind around here. I liked it better when he wasn't talking at all, honestly. (laughs) Now, verse 24 might not be just offensive to her, because if you're not Jewish, what did Jesus just say? He just said, I didn't, I was not sent to you either. Don't panic. I want to take a quick break and explain that. That Jesus was not sent to Gentiles like us does not mean that Jesus was not sent for Gentiles like us. 
But this is true what Jesus said. He was not sent to the Gentiles. Paul wrote it this way, Romans 1.16. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. And when Paul used the word Greek, he meant every non-Jew in his Greco-Roman society. So when God is unfolding his plan for redemption, he always started with Israel. But he didn't end there. He didn't finish there. So far in the story of Matthew, he sent his disciples out and told them, only preach to Israel. You go tell, the, tell Israel that the king's here. We're going to offer the kingdom to Israel. When they reject the kingdom, when they reject the king, when they kill him on the cross, Jesus rises again. He's going to tell his disciples, now you take this message of the gospel to all nations. In a way, it's like Jesus was sent to Israel The apostles were sent to the Gentiles, but Jesus died for everyone. Does that make sense? But regardless, this woman with a poor, severely demonized daughter is begging for help, and Jesus just said, it's not time for a Gentile mission. Sorry, take a number. Wait in line. Maybe she'll live long enough. I don't know. But this woman ain't taken no for an answer. In verse 25, we read, She came and bowed down before him and said, Lord, help me. She's still just begging. The word for bowed down, uh, proskuneo, it's a form of that word. That is the word for the position of worship. You might have a translation that says she worshiped Jesus. And she very well may have. She at least assumed the position of worship. And she's just broken. She's just begging, Lord, help me. And then in verse 26, things get really uncomfortable. (laughs) Although I want you to notice, Jesus never does send her away. He never tells her to leave like the disciples wanted. But it does seem like he's trying to get rid of her. In verse 26, Jesus says, he hears her begging, sees her in a position of worship, And he says, it's not right to take the children's food or bread and and throw it to dogs. I mean, this this is the one where you read that and kind of go, whoo, Jesus, come on here. I mean, isn't that a little too far? You can't, you shouldn't call this gal a dog. I mean, I know you're always right, but seriously here. Israelites had been calling Gentiles dogs for a long time. It had never been a compliment. Not once. And it's not here either. I do want you to know Jesus softens the language a little bit. There are different words for dogs in first in Hebrew. And now this is, this is Greek. And in the Old Testament, Greek translation called the Septuagint. When Jews or Israelites called a Gentile a dog, they always used this word that meant like a wild or feral, nasty dog that ran in packs and dumped your trash cans over and scattered trash all over your alley. That kind of dog. And Jesus doesn't use that word. He uses a word for a house pet, a little beloved house pet. But he still called her a dog. It's a dog he likes. (laughs) But a dog nonetheless. Here's what he's saying. 
Basically, this is a very rude way of saying it's not time for you to eat yet. Um, Back in that day, buying dog food was not a thing, right? I know today, um, many of you might buy like non-GMO, gluten-free, fully organic, all-meat dog cuisine for your puppy, which doesn't make you a bad person, it just makes you a little off, I don't know. You might have a vegan option for your dog, but um, back then, you know what dogs ate? Whatever's left over from supper. And logically, did you, which did you feed first? You loved your dog, but if you let your dog have at it, your dog would eat everything, right? So no matter how much you loved your dog, you, fed your, you didn't feed your dog before you fed your kids. The kids ate first. And Jesus is saying... The plan of salvation is to start with Israel. It's not time for a Gentile mission yet. But wouldn't you agree that there are gentler, kindler ways to explain that than to call her a dog? There are. But Jesus, from the very first moment he saw this gal, he knew her heart. And Jesus is pulling this conversation out of her. He is training his disciples in this conversation with this woman. She didn't need this conversation to go down like this. The disciples did. And we did. And here's why. I mentioned at the beginning how important it is to keep in mind what just happened. Jesus just met with the most religious people in Israel. The best rule followers, the most, uh, you know, they do all the rituals, everything. And they met Jesus and they said, well, we have this little hand baptism thing we do. Do you do that? No. Well, and I'm so offended that you would call yourself the Messiah because you don't do what I do. That I, I have to reject your candidacy for Messiah. I am sorry. And the people that knew the most about the scriptures missed their Messiah because they were offended that he wouldn't behave the way they wanted a Messiah to behave. Do you see what a contrast is offered between this woman and those religious leaders? Were you offended by the way Jesus spoke to her when you read this? You can be honest. Do you think Jesus spoke to her offensively? If you do think that, I want you to know you read this correctly. If you read this and you were just figuring out ways, well, that really doesn't, it's not, that's really not offensive because Jesus would never do that. You're reading the story wrong. Jesus intentionally spoke offensively to this woman, but not to ruin her faith, not to ruin her, to let her, the faith he knew was in there. He just wanted her to demonstrate the faith that was in there so his disciples could see the difference between the super religious who were convinced they didn't need a savior. I just want the Messiah to show up and tell everybody how righteous I am because I keep all the rules and do all the rituals. Jesus said, let me show you what real faith looks like. This Gentile, this woman that no Jew would have anything to do with with demons in her house. This is the one. And he holds her up as an example. 
of faith. And her response to the most offensive thing that Jesus says is just, it's, it's just breathtaking to me. I just love it so much. She's still on her knees. He's just called her a dog. A dog that shouldn't eat until my real kids are done eating. And her first two words are, yes, Lord. If he'd called you a dog, what would you have said? Who are you calling a dog? It's who do you think you are? See, this is why I don't like the Jews. They think they're better than everybody. There's none of that. She says, somehow she understands, Lord, if you say it's not time for our people to eat, then it's not. If you say I'm a dog, at least you said I'm one you like. If you say I'm a dog, then I'm a dog. Because you're right, because you're the Lord. And then she uses Jesus' own metaphor against him. She says, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You see what she does there? She says, I, I'm not going to argue with you. If you say it's not time for our people to eat, it's not time. But here's the way it works in the real world, Lord. When you get a dog you really like, and it's not time for the dog to eat, sometimes the master's kid throws stuff off the table or drops stuff off the table and it's perfectly acceptable for the little dog to go eat what falls on the table. That's all I'm asking for, just a little crumb, just a little morsel. Because I know you're my only hope. And even if it's not time, can you just let something drop? And if you put the two stories together, guess what just happened? Last week, the king's real children threw all the food on the table off the table, on the floor. They rejected the meal the Messiah was offering. And this woman who, was, who had real reason to be offended said, just, just one, just a little, throw me a bone here. I will take what the children reject. It's just, it's perfect. It's perfect. And Jesus notices too. And Jesus answers her. So now he's looking at her for sure. And he says, woman, which by the way is much more gentle in the original language than it comes across in English. Woman, your faith is great. In Greek he says she has mega faith. Let what you want be done for you. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. There's only two people in the book of Matthew that we get told have great faith. Lots of people have little faith, weak faith, no faith. There's two people that have mega faith, great faith. The centurion, we saw him a long time ago. He had a servant that was sick. And this woman right here, both Gentiles, by the way, like us. And Jesus, he, both of them, he holds them up, but we're talking about just this gal. He holds her up. He wants his disciples to hear this. This is great faith. It's like Jesus is saying, boys, when, you go, when I send you out on your Gentile mission, this is the kind of faith you should want to see in yourself first and hopefully in other people. Great faith. So what is it about this woman's faith that makes it great? 
What should you and I want to have in our faith that she had in hers? She's the example today. Today, Jesus isn't the example. She is. Because she has great faith. And I think there's three reasons that her faith is great. This is what great faith looks like. First, if you want to have great faith, great faith must be in Jesus alone. She was, from a, she was a Canaanite. She was from a, a pagan society. But she wouldn't leave Jesus because Jesus was her only hope. If she thought some other God, some other something, some other whatever could help her, she wouldn't stand there and put up with that offense, being called a dog. Great faith must be in Jesus alone. Jesus cannot be one item on the religious menu. He's the whole enchilada. He's the whole meal. He's the bread of life. Second, and maybe this is the, the main lesson from this woman's life, great faith persists through offense, through being offended. If you become a Christian, dive into the scriptures, want to follow Jesus, let me tell you what is going to happen. God is going to offend you. This book is going to offend you. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how to break this to you other than just say it. God is, you are not always going to agree with God, and God is not always going to agree with you. You are not batting a thousand with God. If you're honest with yourself, you will read stuff in this book that makes you uncomfortable, that you kind of wish wasn't there. Or how about this? A sovereign God will allow things into your life that you don't think is right for him to allow in your life. It's offensive. The question is, what do we do when we get there? One thing to do is be like the scribes and Pharisees. Well, I mean, if that's what you teach, I could never believe in a Messiah that would say that or do that or wouldn't do what I want. And we get offended by God, defended by Jesus, and we say, no, thank you. I could, I could never worship a God that would whatever. Or we could be like this woman that says, hey, I don't like being called a dog, but where else am I going to go? I mean, if you're the Savior, if you're the Messiah, you say I'm a dog, I guess I'm a dog. You say it's not time for my people to eat, I guess it's not time for us to eat. But I'm still not going anywhere else because you are my only hope. Tim Keller says this this way. I love this. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And this is really important to understand because we are great. We are great at taking what we think, what we want to do, and how we want to act, and coming up with rationalizations why that's really the way God is. Like we're batting a thousand with God. Every time I'm angry, it's righteous anger, just like when Jesus turned the tables over in the temple. right? Or how about this? 
If I want to be rude to somebody, I say, Oh, you remember with the Syrophoenician woman? Jesus was rude to that woman. Like, and that, see? And I'm just being like Jesus was right then. If you can read a story like this and think it gives you license to be mean to people, that that's the purpose of this story, you don't know how to read a story. That's not what this is for. But if you read this and go, Man, here's a woman who was offended by the God of the universe and held on for dear life because she had no other hope anywhere else. Because third grade faith is humble. Great faith recognizes I'm not God, I'm not like God, I don't think like God. His ways are higher, his brain is bigger. It recognizes that he will always be right and I will never be always like him. So let me ask you while we close. How's your faith? Is your faith, is what you depend upon in your standing before God based solely and only on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you? Or do you think there's some other way you can be pleasing before God besides depending completely on him? Great faith is only in Jesus. Second, have you been holding on to offensive things and saying and thinking things like, I could never believe in a God who would you know, do all those wars in this book, who could still say that was a sin in this book, who could name your offense here. I could never believe in a God like that. You might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself and that God can't save. If you have failed to relent to Jesus Christ because you're offended about something, I just want to ask you this. Are you willing to go stand before the throne, the God of the universe, and say, I think you had some things wrong, so I couldn't follow you? Or is it better to relent and say, I won't agree with everything? But where else will I go? Will you change my heart slowly to match yours? And you can allow into my life what you must. But I will never let go of you. Would you pray with me and we'll close. Father God, I thank you for the model of great faith. Shown by this, this woman. God, faith that goes toward Jesus Christ and recognizes his identity and depends solely on him and doesn't allow, God, help us not to allow our being offended to dictate what we believe. Help us depend upon your word. Understanding that even when we don't understand that you somehow are right, our faith to be humble. God, thank you that simple faith in Christ alone saves. May our faith be stronger than our feelings and our offense. And we thank
thank you for dying on the cross under the offense of the world for our salvation. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.